And we are back for episode two of our Dead Too Early season of Music Madness. This is your host, Kent, and we're back to discuss another batch of artists in our new theme. This season, we're exploring a list of artists who passed away while in the prime of their careers. We're calling uh, this the Dead Too Early, and what that means is they died before the age of 50 and they were active. This can be a pretty tough topic because it's sad, but I think it's worthwhile to celebrate the art these people were able to produce while they were alive um, and producing music. So last week we started our play-in matches. Just what does that mean? Um, this season we're going to do 48 total artists versus the 64 we did last season. It gives us a chance to really dive into the artists a little bit more, but to even focus more, we're doing the bottom four seeds for a play-in. So today, we're going to chat about eight artists that are battling for our five, six, seven, and eight seeds in one of our brackets. We're going to give them a bit more airtime than we, our lower seeds got last time, and we're going to explore them in a bit of a lightning round. Last week, we went through eight artists who passed away from health reasons. The pairings were, for the eight seed, country artist Keith Whiteley versus Bronx rapper Big Punisher, or Big Pun. Our eight seed combatants were Cass Elliott, a.k.a. Mama Cass from the Mamas and the Papas, versus rap icon Easy e from NWA. At our six seeds, we had jazz pioneer Nat King Cole versus pop crooner Amy Winehouse. And finally, at the five seeds, we had two heavyweights, co-founder of the Grateful Dead, Pigpin McKernan versus Karen Carpenter from the Carpenters. Now we're going to reveal the results from those matchups, but you won't know their opponents for another four weeks because we're going to save the top seeds when we reveal the full bracket. If you thought those eight were big, wait till you see the top four. The crazy thing about our top 16 seeds is that they were all on the Rolling Stones list of the top 100 artists of all time, every single one. So you can see why this is such an interesting topic and why I wanted to do it so bad. So here we go. Here are the results for the first bracket. For our eight seed in the Health Reasons Dead Too Early bracket, we have Big Pun moving on to the eight seed with 72% of the vote versus Keith Whiteley. Can't say I'm too surprised. I mean, Big Pun had a, a much bigger song um, and a much more recent song than Keith Whiteley. For the seven seed, this is the closest vote of these four matchups, and Cass Elliott is moving on with 58% of the vote versus 42% of the vote for Easy. e um, I honestly am kind of surprised that was that close, but, you know, it is what it is. For the six seed, we have Amy Winehouse moving on with 63% of the vote versus Nat King Cole. And our final seed, the big one, for the five seed, Karen Carpenter is moving on with 63% of the vote. I think she's going to be a tough matchup for whoever she gets in the next round. So um, thanks, everybody who voted, and I'm excited to see how these groups do in the next round. Okay, now that we have the results, we can move on to our next brackets play in competition. I am calling our next bracket the Freak Accident Bracket. I was shocked by how many artists died from some sort of vehicle accident. It's crazy. We'll, we'll run through it here, but it's it's a lot of them. We're going to start with our eight seed matchup. Our first competitor is Jim Croce. Croce was from Philadelphia, was born to two Italian immigrants. He never really took music seriously early in his life. He attended Villanova University, and while at university, he was a student DJ and started picking up uh, gigs at fraternity parties, coffee shops, and other gigs around Philly. He went on 
a student exchange to Europe and learned how to play folk music while there. His parents wanted him to get a real job, though, so he always resisted really committing to music. He joined the National Guard, worked as a contractor, pretty much anything that he was good at. In fact, his parents actually gave him 500 bucks to create an album. He created 500 copies of the album named Facets. He sold them all at local shows, but still never really went in all, all in on music. His parents were trying to show him that, you know, ah, you're going to make this and no one's going to buy it. Uh, but they sold out right away. In the 70s, he met a musician named Mari Musselman. This meeting kind of changed his life. Mari played guitar for most of uh, Jim's biggest hits. The pair signed a contract and released their first album, You Don't Mess Around with Jim. It included hits Time in a Bottle, Operator, That's Not the Way It Feels, and You Don't Mess Around with Jim. The album got him in an, an international audience with him performing on The Tonight Show, American Bandstand, and other shows. He then launched an international tour, tour of Europe. While there, he released his second album, T Life and Times, in 1973, which included Bad Bad Leroy Brown. The song was a number one hit, and it was the only number one song he had while he was alive, interestingly enough, even though Time in a Bottle was in the first album. While on tour, they finished his third major album, I Got a Name. However, Jim was extremely homesick. He wrote a letter to his wife, Ingrid, stating that he was going to take a break from music and spend some time in their home with her and her son after the album. The letter arrived the day after his death. In September of 1973, Jim and Mari were flying from Louisiana to Texas on a small plane, which is going to be kind of a theme of this uh, podcast, which crashed on takeoff. The two of them died along with three other people on the plane. His album, I Got a Name, was released on December 3rd. Three songs from it after his death and Time in a Bottle charted up to number one. The song had been released prior, but uh, the subject matter really made it so that the record companies pushed out Time in a Bottle and it became a number one. So sad to kind of hear how his, uh, his life was cut short, even though he was going to go home to his wife and kids. Croce's opponent is Richard Stephen Valenzuela better known by his stage name as Richie Valens. Valens was born outside of Los Angeles. He was born to two Mexican parents who grew up listening to mariachi and flamenco style of music. He learned to play guitar and trumpet and drums by the time he was 15. Valens went to high school in Pecoma Junior High School uh, outside of LA. In 1957, there was a mid-air collision where the planes where planes crashed in the play yard of the school and it terrified him and he ended up having reoccurring nightmares about flying which was a uh, premonition for what was going to come for him maybe um richard would play small shows in the san fernando valley as a teenager in 1958 he a record label owner bob keen from a really small record label happened to hear about one of his shows people were calling him the little richard of san fernando Keen was the one who suggested he go with Richie Valens. He recorded songs like Donna, Come On, Let's Go, and La Bamba. Donna was based on his high school sweetheart named Donna Ludwig. Uh, this was released as a self-titled album. It became a major hit. It peaked at number 23 on the charts. Valens went on a large tour after the album re release. He went to Hawaii. He came back and performed at his high school. And that's actually, oddly enough, the only live recording of any of his concerts. He performed at New York City at Christmas, at the Apollo Theater, and on the Dick Clark Show. After his tour of New York, he joined a tour with other up-and-coming artists Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. 
In February of 1959, they were flying from Mason City, Iowa to Fargo, North Dakota. The plane crashed soon after takeoff, killing everyone on board. Later, Don McLean wrote the song The Day the Music Died about this crash. Valens was only 17 at the time of his death. I had no idea. I'd seen the movie about him and um, heard the song La Bamba a ton of times, but I had no idea he was only 17 when he died. Valens forged new ground for Latin and rock and roll performers. Los Lonely Boys, Carlos Santana, and the Los Lobos have credited him with forging new ground for Latin performers. La Bamba was the only was um, one of the first songs sang entirely in Spanish to chart on the mainstream charts. Interestingly, his family spoke at Eng- in English at home, so he had to learn how to say the words in Spanish to even sing it, which I that's crazy, a little piece of trivia there. Elvis Presley asked his ex-girlfriend Donna out to dinner because he wanted to learn more about him. It's insane to think of how much potential was wasted, like if Elvis is trying to emulate what he did, just think if he would have survived, would we have Elvis, right? Like it uh, might have been Richie Valens in that spot. So crazy to think. So for the seven seats, we're seven seeds. We're going to start ratcheting up the difficulty a little bit here. It's crazy. The artists in this bracket, like in the, the plane, the accident bracket. Our first contestant for the seven seed is Aaliyah Dana Houghton, who simply went by Aaliyah for her stage name. She's one of those artists I obviously knew of. Her music was everywhere, and she was in a number of movies in the late 90s, but I didn't know her quote-unquote origin story as it was. She appeared on the old show Star Search at the age of 10. Later that year, she recorded alongside Gladys Knight. It does turn out that her uncle was the owner of a record label called Black Ground Records, and at age 12, she signed for Black, J- Black Ground and Jive Records. Her uncle introduced her to R. Kelly, who took her under his wing. Knowing what we know now about R. Kelly, that seems crazy to introduce your niece to somebody who's a predator. Even crazier, R. Kelly helped produce her first album, Age is Just a Number. What a terrible name for an album for a known uh, dude that uh, was known for being a pedophile. How did he not get caught? The most wild thing about this entire story is that there are stories that uh, R. Kelly and Aaliyah got married when she was 15 and he was 27. Her family had to sign a non-disclosure agreement. They got the rights to her first three albums, which because he was the producer on, he owned the rights to, and their marriage got annulled if they didn't press charges. So it's just crazy. This all kind of came out after his his stuff all kind of fell apart. She left Jive Records and after this signed with Atlantic Records and worked with Missy Elliott and Timbaland. Both those two were up and coming. They had not really done a ton at this time, but they both produced her first, um, her next album, which was called One in a Million in 1996, and she was only 17. A few years later, she made her acting debut in a movie called Romeo Must Die with Jet Li. I remember going and seeing this movie in the theaters. It was awesome. It was a blockbuster movie, and her song Try Again was a massive hit from the soundtrack from it. It actually kind of brought up the One in a Million album. Um, it was her only number one hit, and it also became the first song ever to reach number one based solely on radio play. Like the formula for Billboard includes radio plays, album sales, and streaming. This song was on the radio all the time in 2000. And in 2000, she was also in the sequel to Interview with the Vampire called Queen of the Damned. Because of her acting success, it actually took her five years to put out a second album. And it was the self-titled Aaliyah. 
The album debuted at number two on the Billboard Hot 200, and it generated hits like Rock the Boat and Try Again was on there. After her death, the label put out another album, I Care For You, which included a single that had previously been released um, called Are You That Somebody, which went on to be another massive hit. In August of 2001, Aaliyah finished recording the music video for Rock the Boat in the Bahamas. She and her entourage were booked on a flight the next day, but they wanted to get back to Miami, so they chartered a different flight on a smaller plane. Supposedly, the pilot told them that they had too much stuff, but they loaded the plane anyway. They also had an extra person than, than the plane was rated for. The plane crashed immediately on takeoff and burst into flames. The autopsy found that the pilot had a trace of cocaine and alcohol in his system. Aaliyah was only 22 at the time of her death. At the time of her death, estimates claim that she had sold around 30 million albums in the time between 17 and 22, which is an insane number of albums. So you can only imagine what she could have done if she hadn't died so, so young. A little drink of beer there. Um, so onto her opponent. I, I'm not intentionally making these matchups crazy, but um, somebody said on uh, Discord this week that the matchups are a little wild. I, I, I kind of did it as a choose-your-own-adventure for the bracket, right? Like, let's put some crazy artists together and see who pops out the other side. So her opponent is Stevie Ray Vaughan, who revitalized the blues style of music in the 80s and was a revolutionary guitar player. He ranks number seven on Rolling Stone's list of greatest guitar players ever. He was born in Texas and started playing guitar because his older brother, Jimmy Vaughn, also played guitar. At age nine, his brother gave him an electric guitar and he didn't put it down ever again. In 1965, at age 11, Vaughn joined his first band at age 11. He would play clubs and bars in Dallas. His brother, Jimmy, left home when he was 16. Jimmy was 16. And that drove Vaughn to play guitar even more. Vaughn himself dropped out of high school and started bouncing from band to band. Everyone was amazed by how good this kid was at playing guitar and, he sh- and was just shocked how young he was. Much of the music he was playing at the time was pop, and he didn't really like it all that much. Stevie wanted to play the blues. So in 1971, he moved to Austin and formed his first band named Blackbird and took up residence at a ball bar called Rolling Hills Club, where he could play the blues. He really bounced from band to band in the 70s. He was in bands called the Nightcrawlers, the Cracker Jack, Paul Ray and the Cobras, Triple Threat Review, And it was in 1978, a band member left Triple Threat, and they changed the name of the band to Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Chris Layton was his drummer, Tommy Shannon played the bass, but the star of the show was Vaughan and his guitar playing. Double Trouble took up residence at the Rome Room in Austin and became a staple in Texas by 1980. In 1982, Double Trouble played the Montreux Jazz Fest in Switzerland. I had never heard of this before, but supposedly it's one of the biggest jazz fests in the world. Uh, They were unsigned, didn't have a record label, and they hadn't put an album yet. Um, But a lot of people heard them there and like, who the heck is this guy? Uh, David Bowie heard Vaughn and asked him to play guitar on his next album, which was Just Dance, which turned out to be one of his biggest albums. It went on to outsell his previous album by three times, and Bowie, still to this day, credits Vaughn for a lot of the success because the guitar playing was just so good. Double Trouble got a record deal out of the show, and their first album, Texas Flood, blew up. Uh, Pride and Joy is still a staple of blues shows. You'll know it. She's my pride and joy. 
the album went platinum and that song got to number 20 on the charts. The second album, Couldn't Stand the Weather, reached number 31 on the Billboard Hot 200. The title track got some play on MTV, uh, but there were mixed reviews because half the album was really just covers, including a lot of Jimi Hendrix. There was Voodoo Child and a couple other songs from Jimi on there, and Stevie was just trying to recreate a lot of what Jimi had been. The, the, the dark side is Stevie had a lot of addiction is- issues. He'd spoken about growing up with an alcoholic and abusive father. He'd started sneaking drinks when he was six years old. In the mid-70s, he discovered cocaine and had become an addict. In 1978, he was arrested at a show when a cop saw him doing it through an open window. He was initially sentenced to probation and prohibited from leaving the state, but he fought it because his career was about touring. However, that didn't stop his addiction. According to his assistant near the end of his life, Stevie was drinking a liter of whiskey and seven grams of cocaine a day. In the mid-80s, he almost died in Germany because of substance abuse. He took a full month off touring, went to rehab, and got clean. Um, his addiction impacted their two album, their two albums in the middle, Soul to Soul and Live Again. Neither sold great, and Live Again never charted. Stevie said he was so whacked out he couldn't think of songs, and he could barely play and sing at the same time, and almost everyone was expecting to see that he died from addiction. His addiction caused his wife to divorce him, and it took two years to settle that divorce, so Double Trouble wasn't able to record anything in those two years until the divorce settled. Their last album was titled In Step, and Vaughn wrote a number of the songs about addiction and sobriety. Vaughn said the album was about his life uh, was back in step. Songs Crossfire and Love Me Darling charted, and this was their most successful album commercially. In 1990, Double Trouble was opening for Clapton at a concert in Wisconsin outside of Milwaukee. Vaughn was going to take a helicopter from the show to Chicago with a number of Clapton's entourage. Sadly, the helicopter crashed on takeoff, killing everyone inside. Vaughn was only 35 year old, years old. It's kind of crazy how he actually survived all of his addiction, his, his self-destructive behavior, and he'd achieved sobriety, and then he dies from a helicopter crash. Like, it's so, it's uh, just sad, right, Like to hear how that went down. So to completely switch it up, at our six seeds, we have probably the biggest hoedown in history. I said before we're trying to patch up weird artists. This one is totally just a battle of two country artists. As many of you know, country isn't my cup of tea, but these are two massive names from the country world. First up, it's the original Taylor Swift, Patsy Cline. Born Virginia Patterson Hensley in 1932 in a small town in Virginia, Patsy Cline was a pioneer for female artists. She started in country music, but a lot of her music transitioned into pop because it was so just it, it reinvented kind of the genre. She was also wasn't happy with the management she received earlier in her life, so she decided to set her own path. Her massive success came after she'd found a manager who helped her accentuate what she was doing versus holding her back. She first performed on a local radio station, again, when she was 15. It's crazy how young so many of these people started. This brought her uh, to the attention of a man named Bill Peer. Pierre had a local band that she'd sing for. Supposedly, the two of them started an affair at the time, and Pierre acted as her manager. She met her first husband, Gerald Klein, while playing with Pierre. Pierre recommended that she needed a stage name, and that was where she decided on the name Patsy Klein, taking her husband's last name. Pierre got her signed with a record label called Four Star Records. She put out a few albums, a few singles, but almost none of them got any serious airplay. She tried country, rockabilly, gospel, country... 
um, again, and she really was trying to figure out her sound. However, then she started doing a few shows on TV. Her first appearance was on Ozark Jubilee on ABC, which I guess was a country spotlight show back in the day. This got the attention of a show called Arthur Godfrey's Talent Scouts, which was a nationally broadcast show on CBS. She was going to perform one of her older songs, but the show's producer had heard a new recording she'd just done, and they suggested that she do that. She performed Walkin' After Midnight for the first time ever, and it was a bottle rocket for her. So she had just signed a new record deal for a company called Decca, and they rushed to get a single out. It peaked at number two on the hot country list and number 12 on the Billboard chart, pop charts. However, it really was a false start. Her next album didn't really do anything. She felt like um, she wasn't getting enough good material brought to her. She divorced her fir- first husband, married her second husband named Charlie Dick. She gave birth to her first child, and she decided she was going to move to Nashville to be closer to a better uh, content. She started working with manager Owen Bradley, and he introduced her to her long-term manager, Randy Hughes. The two of them started getting better content brought her way. Muting Hughes turned out to be a life-changing thing for her, and the move to Nashville really sparked her uh, ascendancy. Hughes got her to be a regular performer at the Grand, Grand Old Opry. She signed for DECA in 1960, and her first single for them was I Fall to Pieces, which is only her second appearance on the country and pop charts. It topped the country charts and reached number 12 on the pop charts. After she moved to Nashville, the story almost ended. Right after I Fall to Pieces, Patsy was in a massive head-on car collision. She was catapulted into the windshield and got large cuts all over her face and body. Two people in the other car died on the scene, and she had life-threatening injuries. She took over a month to recover. It's kind of crazy how a number of the people on this accident list uh, had a couple of brushes with death, right? Like, it's not funny, but it just is uh, its crazy. Her first song after her recovery was a song she didn't even want to do. It also turned out to be her most successful song. Crazy was initially recorded by Willie Nelson. She heard it and didn't like it. Bradley thought it would be good for her and started to prepare for her record and eventually talked her into singing it. The song went to reach number nine on the pop charts. From here, she released a number of other singles that were popular at the time. She went on to headline a show in Las Vegas for a month becoming the first female country artist to do so. In March of 1963, Patsy performed at a benefit for Kansas City DJ Cactus Jack Call, who had died in a car crash with a number of other great uh, country greats. Her manager, Randy Hughes, and the two other lesser-known artists were going to fly back to Nashville in a small plane. Randy was a pilot, and he was flying this plane. They landed in a small airport outside of Dryersburg, Tennessee, to fill up. And the airfield manager actually suggested that they maybe stay put for the night because the winds were so bad. Hughes blew it off and the plane crashed in bad weather just 90 miles from their home in Nashville, killing everyone on board. Patsy was only 30 years old when she died. Her opponent is also Nashville royalty, Hiram Hank Williams. The Most people know that name for his son, Hank Williams Jr., a.k.a. the Are You Ready for Some Football guy for Monday Night Football. That's the junior, not the senior. Hank Sr. didn't invent country music, but he sure did move it into the mainstream. Williams grew up in a very rural area in Alabama. His grandfather had fought in the Civil War for the South. Um, He was a true Southerner. Williams claims that he never received any formal musical training. 
He said that a street performer taught him how to play the blues and that was all he really needed. He said that in a number of interviews that he couldn't read or write music, which is insane. Uh, Didn't know one note from another. It's crazy because Williams had 55 songs that reached the top of the Billboard country charts in his short career, which is it's the top 10 of the Billboard country charts. Sorry. Williams grew up really poor. His dad had a brain aneurysm, which kept him in the hospital for most of his childhood. His mom, Lily, raised him and moved around Alabama. Williams got his first guitar at age eight and was taught, as I said, by a homeless street performer how to play in exchange for food and lodging. At age 14, Williams started entering talent contests and won a few of them. At 15, he would set out on a street corner outside a local radio station in Montgomery, Alabama. The station producers saw him win a talent contest, so they invited him to come into the station, and they eventually gave him his own radio program. At 16, Williams dropped out of school and formed a band called the Driftless Cowboys. They would tour Alabama, parts of Georgia, and southern Tennessee. They played clubs and bars here that were really rough, Um, and their shows would often end up in fights. I was reading a number of anecdotes from his band members about how he would bring like knuckle dusters just into the bar. William's mom, Lily, was their manager, and he's quoted as saying, there ain't nobody I'd rather have alongside me in a fight than my mama with a broken bottle in her hand. (laughs) I mean, this woman must have been crazy. Um, At this point, though, Williams was drinking a lot. His entire band was drafted in World War II, but he couldn't go because he had a really bad back. He had fallen off a horse at some point or something or other. His replacement band all quit because he was such a drunk. He was drunk all the time, so they couldn't practice and didn't, didn't gel well. During the war, he worked odd jobs, and he actually met his wife, Audrey Shepard, working at a shipyard that they were building naval ships. She saw his talent and encouraged him to start writing his own stuff. She got him his job back at the radio station and introduced him to manager Fred Rose, who got him a record deal. He signed for MGM Records and recorded his first song, Moving On Over, which, again, we've all heard, which uh, was a massive hit. His next song, Love Sick Blues, was number one on the Billboard charts for four months. This got him a regular spot at Grand Old Opry, and he went on to produce five more top five hits in the late 40s, including Mind Your Own Business. The early 50s was when it was really peak Hank Williams. He went on a tour with Bob Hope and a few others. He went on the Perry Como show on CBS and performed Hey, Good Looking for the first time on air. Williams recorded Your Cheatin' Heart in 1952, just before his death. In that year, he was fired from the Grand Old Opry because he kept missing shows and he was drunk when he did show up. So it just is, uh, he was, his alcoholism was just insane. Williams had a lot of back pain too. As I said, he wasn't able to go to the war because of his, his back. His heart wasn't doing so well from a lifetime of alcohol abuse. And in 1952, he met a fraudster named Horace Toby Marshall, who told him he was a doctor. He prescribed Williams amphetamines, barbiturates, morphine, and coral hydrate, which all made his heart condition even worse. The entire situation of his death is a big mystery, which is why he actually falls into the freak accident one as opposed to drugs or anything else like that. Williams had a concert in West Virginia on December of December 31st of 1952. He couldn't fly because of bad weather, so he hired a college student to drive him from Montgomery, Alabama, and the student's name was Charles Carr. Hank was in so much pain from his back that he was drunk the entire drive. 
Somewhere along the drive, Hank's back hurt so bad that they called a doctor in Knoxville. There are questions of what the doctor actually gave him. Was it a vitamin injection? Was it morphine? Um, Because he was already taking morphine because Horace Marshall had already prescribed it to him, but he probably didn't have a legal prescription. There are also questions if he died there and was put back in the car or if he died on the road in the back seat and car didn't recognize it. When they stopped for gas in West Virginia, Williams was long dead. The autopsy found that he had had some hemorrhages in his body because he'd been beaten badly in a bar fight a few nights before. All the way around, Hank got screwed by some bad medical advice and was dead at the age of only 29. Um, just all the way around. I, 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 I couldn't figure out where to put this guy because he, he needed to be a part of the list, but felt like a freak accident kind of was the best spot for him. So we're on to our last two contestants of this pod, our two five seats. I'm hoping you can appreciate how great our top four must be for these to be two five seats. Our first contestant is part of the mid-90s pop mega trio, TLC, Lisa Lefty Lopez, who has partnered with Rosanda Chili Thomas and Tion Tibaz Watkins to form one of the biggest and most influential all-women groups of the mid-90s, and they set the blueprint for the female groups that exist even to this very day. Interestingly, the band was the idea of a woman named Crystal Jones. She had the idea to create a tomboyish hip-hop girl group that had kind of a modern 90s flair. The band they wanted to emulate was Belle Biv DeVoe, which I'm sure you all remember. Uh, She signed with a producer named Ian Burke, and they hired Tion Watkins, who was from Des Moines, Iowa, and Lisa Lopez, who had moved to Atlanta from Philly. She'd moved to Atlanta to dance and rap music videos, but she had a good voice, and they actually founded a group called Second Nature. In 1990, they started working with a singer named Perry Pebbles Reed. She had had some hits in the 80s, and she had started her own production company, and she started managing the group. Reed suggested that they change the name of the group from Second Nature to TLC, which was the first letter of the first name of the three members, Tiona, Lisa, and Crystal. Reed was married to Antonio L.A. Reed, who's a super connected producer, um, and he had worked with Boys to Men. Reed started uh, a company with Babyface, who's another singer from Atlanta, and the company had been named LaFace. The two of them had thought Tione and Lisa had potential, but thought Crystal was not worth keeping around. She didn't have potential. So they brought in a backup dancer named Rosanda Thomas as a replacement. In order to keep the name TLC, they needed nicknames to keep the TLC. Hence, T-Boz, Chili, and Left Eye, which is what TLC stood for. Um, they put together their first album, Ooh, on the TLC tip which sold 6 million albums in 1992. It was a huge hit. Songs like Baby, Baby, Baby did really well on the charts, with that song peaking at number two. Lopez was the primary songwriter for the group and was also the primary rapper. Soon afterwards, she started dating Atlanta Falcons wide receiver Andre Risen. I'm sure you all remember this story if you were around. Needless to say, it was a combustible relationship. Uh, They dated for seven years, but in 1994, she got arrested for lighting a pile of his shoes on fire in their bathtub. The house burned down completely. She claimed that he had abused her that night, um, and this was her way of getting back at him. She She got probation and had to pay a huge fine. As part of it, she 
had to spend some time in a halfway house. While there, she met a mother who was struggling with addiction in the house, and she ended up adopting the woman's eight-year-old boy. Ryzen and she reconciled, and they dated almost until her death. Their second album, Crazy Sexy Cool, was the peak of TLC. It was a massive, massive album, selling over 14 million records worldwide. Babyface and Jermaine Dupri, there's a name I hadn't thought of in a long time, produced the album. A young Sean Puff Daddy Combs worked on the album as well. The album ended up number 218 on Rolling Stone's top 500 albums of all time. It included Creep, Red Light Special, and Waterfalls. Both Creep and Waterfalls reached number one on the charts. The album peaked at number three on the Billboard Hot 200 and spent over two years on the chart. It won the Grammy for Best R&B Album, Best R&B Performance by a Duo or a Group for Creep. Billboard named them the artist for the year 1996. Lopez had come back from rehab in that time to be part of the album, but she was a much much less prominent piece of this album as they had moved away from really the rap sound to more of a R&B soulful sound. Shockingly, all three members of the group declared bankruptcy right after this album came out. So because they had people managing and producing all of their music, and because of the deals they had signed early on as a group, when they were just getting started, the members of the group actually accumulated more debt the more successful the album was, which is insane to think of because the tours and just producing things cost too much money to, because they were making so little. For every album that was sold, the three of them split 56 cents, which was tiny if you think of how expensive a CD was in the 90s. Eventually, Pebbles Reed let them out of their agreement, sold them the name TLC, and settled for royalties on any album they sold into the future, which gave them a lot more control over their life. But uh, it's just it's crazy to hear how their biggest album came out and they didn't really even get a lot of money from it. The last TLC album that Lopez was a part of was called Fan Mail, which included massive hits No Scrubs and Unpretty. The album debuted at number one on the Hot 200, sold over 10 million copies. Both of the songs peaked at number one on the charts. In building up to the album, one of the producers had asked for a lot of money and the group didn't agree. So the three members had taken some time to do their own thing. During the time, Lopez had started her own production company called Left Eye Productions and signed the trio called Black, spelled B-L-A-Q-U-E, which actually had a platinum selling album and two top 10 singles. After fan mail came out, Lopez started to voice that she felt like her uh, artist's voice was being muted by the other two members of the TLC. Some of the songs on fan mail didn't even feature a vocal from Left Eye. Lopez performed with Spice Girl Mel C on the song Never Be the Same Again, which reached number one in a lot of countries around the world. It was a global hit. However, the trio TLC wouldn't record together again after fan mail. In 2002, Lopez wanted to take a break from fame. She decided to do some missionary work in Honduras after a hurricane had devastated the country. The trip was just full of tragedy. First, early in her trip, her assistant accidentally struck and killed a young boy who had stepped in front of their car. She paid for the funeral and gave his family a lot of money because she felt so guilty. She was recording a documentary, and two weeks later, the group rented a car. Lopez was driving and swerved to avoid an oncoming truck. The car rolled in a ravine and hit two trees. It threw her out of the car and she died instantly. She was only 30 years old. Numerous artists have said that TLC was a massive influence on them, most 
abruptly Destiny's Child, which produced superstar Beyonce. TLC is still performing with the two remaining members, but they haven't produced anything of note since her death. And our final contestant of the pod, her opponent, Southern Rock band leader and one of the greatest guitarists of all time, Dwayne Allman. Dwayne and his younger brother, Greg, were born in Nashville, Tennessee. Their father was an active military member stationed in the U.S. In 1949, three years after Dwayne's birth, their dad was actually murdered. And the boys went back to Tennessee to live with their grandmother. The boys got their first guitar in 1957 and both learned how to play. While living there, Dwayne saw B.B. King play live and he decided, I got to do that. That's what I'm going to do from now on. Dwayne was really known for a very unique style of guitar playing called slide guitar. This means that uh, he used something to cover his finger and he would slide it up and down the neck of the guitar and it created a very unique sound. How this came about was his brother Greg said he discovered the style after he had a really bad injury in 1968. He couldn't play guitar anymore because he couldn't pick the guitar, but his brother got him a bottle of Corsidin, which uh, was a cough medicine back in the day. However, it came in a small glass bottle about the size of a finger. Dwayne dumped the pills out, stuck his finger in the bottle, and began to play slide, which became his signature. A number of other guitarists said had done it in the past, including B.B. King. A number of other guitarists had done it in the past, including B.B. King, but almost everybody says he's the greatest slide guitar player to ever live, which is, is saying something. Dwayne and his brother Greg moved to L.A. and signed a contract with Liberty Records as a band named the Almond Joys, but they had zero success. They sold very few albums and didn't do all that well. Dwayne moved back home and became a session guitarist at a studio in Alabama. He performed guitar for a bunch of other albums and artists, including Aretha Franklin, King Curtis, and Wilson Pickett. He played guitar on Wilson Pickett's cover of Hey Jude, went to number 23 on the charts. Dwayne signed a contract with a manager at the time and started putting together a band. A label thought he had a really great sound with the guitar, and he had a vision for a band that he wanted to put together with two lead guitarists, two drummers, a bassist, and a singer. Dwayne had become friends with Johnny Johansson, a.k.a. Jamo, who was a drummer. He'd done demos with another drummer named Butch Trucks, which may be the best name of all time, at least the best name I've, t- I've come across to on this pod, to become their second drummer. Dickie Betts joined to be their um, second guitarist, and Barry Oakley joined to be their bassist. And when Greg came back from L.A., he fit in as their keyboard player and lead singer, and this became the Allman Brothers Band. Their debut album was called The Allman Brothers Band. I mean, they're really original and really good at coming up with things. Their name is just in everything. The Allman Joys, Allman Brothers Band, whatever. They had a jazz, blues, and jam band sound, country rock style that was really popular at the time. The album included the song Whipping Post, which became a staple, but the album didn't really all do, do all that great. They didn't sell a ton of it. Got really good reviews, um, but then they decided to put out their second album called Idle Wild South, which came out in 1970. It also didn't sell all that great, but the word of mouth about them really started to spread. So they started to get some following because they did over 300 shows in the year 1970. One of their best known songs, Midnight Rider, was on the album Idle Wild South, and it's such a banger. Like everybody knows that song as well. 
the album didn't do all that great and the record company wanted them to move out of the south and work on their craft but they said hell no we're we're a southern band we're staying here and this is where we live the band realized that they were best live and that recording in a studio wasn't their thing they they knew that they wanted to try and do it live as the meme says so they decided to record a live album their third album at Fillmore East was recorded at a rock venue in New York City over two nights. They played mostly songs that had been on their first two albums, but they played them in more of a jam band style, like they would do live and in person. The first song, In Memory of Elizabeth Reed, went on for 18 minutes. The whole album was only 17 songs long, but it was over an hour. The album went on to be a huge seller. It went platinum. It's considered one of the best live albums ever and was selected by the Library of Congress as culturally, historically, or aesthetically important. The album was released in March of 1971. And after that, the band took a little bit of a break from recording and going back on tour uh, before they were going to go back out on a big tour after the album. However, in October of 1971, Duane was riding his motorcycle outside of their home in Macon, Georgia, at a high rate of speed. A truck slammed on the brakes in front of him. He swerved but wasn't able to avoid hitting the truck. He was thrown and the bike landed on top of him. He was alive and taken to the hospital, but all of his internal organs had been crushed and he died soon after. He was only 24 years old when he died. Sadly, bassist Barry Oakley became distraught after Dwayne's death and lived most of the next year high or drunk. About a year later, Oakley was riding his own motorcycle on the same road Dwayne had died on drunk and crashed into a bus and also died. The band continued to produce music for years and were still active until 2014, but they were missing Dwayne's signature guitar sound. So it's just, it's, it's a sad, sad list to hear all of these people whose lives were just cut short, especially many of them right after they had just had their big break, like Allman, the Allman Brothers had just finally busted out with this album. So that'll do it. We're now halfway through our play-in matches. We have our first four names into the final 32 from the first bracket. We have these next eight contestants, which will be uh, the next four we'll come out of. So what do you think? I know I think... Uh, I'm never flying in a small plane ever again. I can't believe how many people died in plane crashes. I hadn't realized that Aaliyah had been married to R. Kelly. How was that guy not arrested in the mid-90s? It's insane. Hank Williams was such a character. His mystery death is an accident, kinda. TLC's story almost made me sad. They were one of the most successful groups of all time, but they had to declare bankruptcy, which is just, it's crazy. So, now we're back to voting. The voting link will be in the description of this episode. If you haven't yet joined our Discord server, what are you waiting for? There's some discussion going on. Come in and join. Um, and let us know who you're voting for and why what other people are voting for is wrong. Next week, we'll reveal results for this week. We'll lay out the next eight playing contestants. Um, I actually, I, I forgot to mention this last time. I've created Spotify playlists for all of the play-in matchups. So there was one for last week. There's one for this week in the description if you want to hear the songs that I mentioned in this podcast. So if you could give this episode a five-star or a like, that would help out a bunch to try and bring in some new listeners. I really do appreciate you continuing to check out the podcast for voting and for listening to me. Hopefully you're having as much fun as I am. And remember, 
You may not like the results, but you can't argue with the process. If you don't like the way things are going, the only way to change it is to invite more of your friends with similar music tastes to vote. And most of all, don't forget to enjoy the madness. Madness.